Welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator Today, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here is your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roche. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Chef Educator Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Colin Roach. And this podcast was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and veteran culinary, baking and pastry, and hospitality educators, teachers, and faculty at both secondary and post-secondary educational institutions. Our hope is to offer a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that we can all use in our classrooms and our labs. And if this is of interest, please be sure to let us know. Don't forget to subscribe and give each episode a positive rating. It is only with your help and support that this podcast is possible. So now let's get right into today's episode, which is the third episode in the series of shows on the subject of grading, assessment, and evaluation, where we take a long, hard, honest, and uncensored look at the way we grade students in our schools today. And well, I had planned to get this episode out to you all sooner. However, I have been swamped as of late. Besides teaching a full load uh, this term at school, I also just started a new second podcast titled Culinary School Stories, which I hope you all will check out. In each episode, I interview people from around the nation who have an association with a culinary school in some way and who share their stories and experiences when they were in culinary school and the impact it had on their life and their career. And you can go to www.culinaryschoolstories.com to find out all information, to hear the current episodes which have already been released, as well as fill out a questionnaire if you are interested in being on the show. So now let's get right into today's episode, which I already mentioned is the third episode in the series on the subject of grading, assessment, and evaluation. And just like the previous episodes, I will be sharing information and research with you from a variety of resources, which I'll include in the show notes. A few of the more influential books that I want to mention right away, though, are On Your Mark by Thomas Gusky, A Repair Kit for Grading by Ken O'Connor, and A Teacher's Guide to Classroom Assessment by Susan Butler and Nancy McMunn. Anyway, I'll put those in there in case you want to look them up. Great books. And I have a lot of other ones I'll put on there too, which I use to influence my teaching. And of course, just like all the other episodes, I will be sharing what I do in the classroom as well. For this specific episode, I want to talk about percentage grades and the use of zeros which are a major problem in making grades fair, accurate, and meaningful. What's worse is that percentage grades are the foundation of many state grading policies. And nearly every online grading program available to educators today calculates percentage grades. There's the problem. Yet despite their popularity, percentage grades are difficult to defend from a procedural, practical, or even an ethical perspective. Now, before we get into the meat of the topic, let's take a brief look back at history to see how we got to where we are today. And this is thanks to Thomas Gusky's book. 
So before 1850, grading and reporting were virtually unknown in the U.S. schools because most schools grouped students of all ages and backgrounds together with one teacher in a one-room schoolhouse. We've all seen pictures of that and heard stories of it. And few students went beyond the elementary level. You know, they were just there for basic maybe reading, writing. The teacher commonly reported students' learning progress orally to parents during visits to the students' homes. That's the way it all started. But as enrollment increased in the late 1800s, however, schools began to group students in grade levels according to age and to use formal progress evaluations. In most cases, these were narrative reports in which teachers described the skills each student had mastered and those on which additional work was needed. The main purpose of such reports was to inform students when they had demonstrated mastery of the current performance level and were ready to move on to the next level. With the passage, though, of compulsory school attendance laws in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, high school enrollments increased rapidly. In about a 40-year span between 1870 and 1910, the number of public high schools in the United States increased from about 500 to around 10,000. Huge. Subject area instructions then became increasingly specific, and student populations obviously became more diverse. Now, although elementary teachers continued to use narrative reports to document student learning, you know, the classic report card like we all had, high school teachers began using percentages and other similar markings to certify accomplishment in different subject areas. Now, this shift to percentage grades was gradual. A few U.S. educators, though, started to question it. The practice seemed you know, a natural result of the increased demand on high school teachers, who now served growing number of students. But in 1912, a study by two Wisconsin researchers seriously challenged the reliability and accuracy of percentage grades. And maybe you've heard about this. It was Daniel Starch and Edward Charles Elliott. In their research, they found that 147 high school English teachers in different schools assigned widely different percentage grades to two identical student papers. That was the basis of their research. Scores on the first paper ranged from 64 to 98, and scores on the second paper ranged from 50 to 97. Huge gap. Same paper, different teachers. One paper was given a failing mark by 15% of the teachers and a grade of over 90 by 12% of the teachers. I mean, how can teachers look at a paper, the same paper, and some say it failed and some say it's an A? You know, some teachers focused on uh, elements of grammar, style, neatness, spelling, and punctuation, whereas others considered only how well the paper communicated its message. So with more than 30 different percentage grades assigned to a single paper and a range of more than 40 points, it is easy to see why this study created a huge stir during its time. It's still talked about today. Well, of course, this study was immediately criticized by those who claimed that judging good writing is, after all, highly subjective, right? Well, how can you do writing? You know, it's a, it's a subjective thing. Well, the researchers repeated this study, and this time they used geometry papers. You know, that's black and white. You know, there's not a lot of subjective in there. 
And they, it was graded by 128 different math teachers. And they found even greater variation. A scores assigned by teachers to one of the math papers ranged from 28 to a 95%. <laughs> and some of the teachers deducted points only for wrong answers. Others gave students varying amounts of partial credit for their work. Still others considered neatness, the form, spelling, and the various grades that they assigned. You can see how it changes, even though the instrument may be fine. You know, that's why we need rubrics and things. Well, anyway, these demonstrations of wide variation in grading practices among teachers led to a gradual move away from percentage grades to scales that had fewer and larger categories. One was a three-point scale that employed the categories excellent, average, and poor. Another scale they used was the familiar five-point scale that we may know of, which is excellent, good, average, poor, and failing, which is the A, B, C, D, and F. So this decrease in the number of score categories led to a greater consistency across teachers in the grades that were assigned to student performance. So it was pretty good. You know, they realized that, you know, we got to bring it down. You know, it's easy to say it's either in this category or this category if we have two or three or up to five. But if you have 100. So percentage grades continue to be relatively rare in U.S. schools until a modern resurgence in the early 1990s. And this was when grading software and online grade books began to gain popularity among educators. Today, schools can choose from numerous electronic grading software programs. I mean, just do a Google search. I did one. You'll see hundreds and hundreds come up. You know, because these programs are developed primarily by computer technicians and software engineers rather than educators like us, they incorporate scales that appeal to technicians, specifically percentages. Okay, so now that we're caught up history-wise and now know how we got here, let's look at why it is bad. So like the monetary system, which is based on the dollar, Percentages have a hundred levels that are easy to divide into increments of halves, quarters, tenths. Percentages are also easy to calculate and easy for most people to understand. You know, you got a 50%, you got half, you got 75, you got three quarters. Thus, the resurgence of percentage grades appears to come mainly from the increased use of technology these days and, you know, the, the, partialities of computer technicians, you know, when they design this software. It was not for the desire of educators for alternative grading scales, or even from research, which what we know about good grading practices. They didn't take any of that into consideration. Now, modern percentage grading scales differ significantly, however, from those that were used in the past. The 100-point scale that teachers employed in the early 20th century were based on an average grade of 50. And grades above 75 or below 25 were very rare. In contrast, most modern applications of percentage grades set the average grade at 75, because that translates to a letter grade of C. And they establish 60 or some do 65 as the minimum threshold for passing. I know at my school, it's 60. In a couple of the schools I've worked in, it's always been 60. You get a 60, you pass, 59, you fail. 
Well, this practice dramatically increases the likelihood of a negatively skewed grade distribution that is heavily gamed against the student. You know, if you know about math and percentages, you know, this is, this is not good. Ironically, neither this narrower grade distribution nor a century of research and experience in scoring students' writing as we just talked about, seems to have improved the reliability of percentage grades assigned by teachers. Recently, in a recent study, Hunter Brimey, I think it is, in 2011, he replicated Starch and Elliott's 1912 study, and he attained almost identical results. He asked 90 high school teachers who had received nearly 20 hours of training in a writing assessment program. Okay, they all were trained on the same methods to grade the same paper on a 100-point scale. Among the 73 teachers who responded, scores ranged from 50 to 96. And that is among teachers who received specific professional development in writing assessment. So they were trained, and the grades still have a huge swing to them, from failure of 50 to 96, which is an A+. So even if one accepts the idea that there are truly, truly 100 discernible levels of student writing performance, it's clear that even well-trained teachers cannot distinguish among those different levels with much accuracy or consistency. From the perspective of simple logic, percentage grading scales make little, if any, sense. As noted earlier, teachers who use percentage grades typically set the minimum passing grade at 60 or 65. The result is a scale that identifies 60 or more distinct levels of failure and only 40 levels of success. In other words, nearly two-thirds of the percentage grading scale describes levels of failure. And what message does that communicate to students? And distinguishing 60 different levels of failure is hardly helpful. I mean, for example, does any teacher consider percentage grades in the 50s to denote, oh, modest failure, and those in the teens or 20s to represent extreme failure? I mean, the student failed just a little bit, but that student over there failed a real lot. I mean, failure is failure. And when it comes to our students, do we really think that unsuccessful students are concerned about which of the 60 different levels of failure they achieved? No. Of course, no one really uses those 60 different levels of failure. Therefore, why do we have them? Why not use a 50-point grading scale and designate 10 levels of failure rather than the 100-point percentage grade with 60 levels of failure? After all, the choice of 100 is really arbitrary. If we had 50, then we'd have, you know, 40 to 50 is an A, 30 to 40 is a B, you know, and so on and so on. Why do we have to use this 100 one? Now, many educators assume that because the percentage grading scale has 100 classification levels or categories, it is more precise than a scale with just a few levels, such as excellent, average, and poor. But in the absence of a truly accurate measuring device, adding more gradations to the measurement scale offers only the illusion of precision. When assigning students to grade categories, statistical error relates to the number of uh, misclassifications. 
So setting more cutoff boundaries or levels or categories in a distribution of scores means that more cases will be vulnerable to fluctuation across these boundaries and hence to more statistical error. In other words, with more levels, more students are likely to be misclassified in terms of their performance on a particular assessment. I mean, that makes sense. If you have to rate someone between one and three, it's going to be a lot closer if 100 people rated that, right? There might be some ones, some twos, and threes. But if you had 100 people grading a one to 100, it's a bigger spread. There's more areas to spread out the grades and miscalculate or misclassify. A grading scale in which two-thirds of the designated levels describe failure also implies that degrees of failure can be more finely distinguished than degrees of success. Remember, 60 you fail. So that's zero to 60 you fail. If you pass, it's 60 to 100. So that's 40. That means it's easy to figure out the failures. Should the, and should the focus of educators be to determine more minutely different levels of failure than those of learning success? I don't think so. And the accuracy of any measure depends on the precision of the measurement instrument. For example, a sophisticated stopwatch, for example, can very accurately measure the time an individual takes to run a 100-meter race. The instrument we use, though, to measure student learning are far less accurate and far less precise. We just saw that in those examples. Our subjective tests, quizzes, exams. We make them up, we grade them, we figure out what's important. So it's, it's not a stopwatch. Right, has human error built into it all over. And measurement experts identify precision by calculating the standard error of measurement. This statistic describes the amount by which a measure might vary from one occasion to the next, using the same device to measure the same trait. Well, we just learned it's not very good when we have teachers grading. Overall, the large number of grade categories in the percentage grading scale and the fine discrimination required in determining the difference among categories allows for the greater influence of subjectivity, as well as more error and diminished reliability. The increased precision of percentage grades is truly far more imaginary than it is real. Now, percentage grades are often directly derived from the percentage of items a student answers correctly on an assessment. This, in turn, is assumed to reflect the percentage of the content the student has learned or the percentage of the skills the student has mastered. Well, because assessments of student performance vary widely in their design, this assumption is rarely true. Some assessments include items or problems that are so challenging that even students who have mastered the essential content and skills still answer a low percentage of the items correctly. Because again, who writes these assessments? The teacher. And was the information taught or available so that they could pass it? Let's take, for example, the graduate record examinations, the GRE. Many of us had to take those to get into graduate school. It's a series of assessments that are used to determine admissions to many different graduate schools and programs. Well, in this case, individuals who answer only 50% of the questions correctly on the GRE physics exam perform better than more than 70% of all individuals who take the exam. 50% of the questions correctly. In most classrooms, of course, students who answer only 50% correctly would receive a failing grade. So, therefore, should we conclude that 
from this information that the majority of prospective graduate students are failures? No. Does it mean that most of those interested in doing advanced graduate work have learned little of their important content and skills in their respective disciplines? No, of course not. Percentage grades derive solely from the percentage correct without careful examination of the items or tasks students are asked to address are just not all that meaningful. And researchers suggest that an appropriate approach to setting cutoffs, whether that's 50, 60, 70%, must combine teachers' judgments of the importance of the concepts addressed and consideration of the cognitive processing skills required by the assessment items or tasks. Makes sense, right? So if you're going to say a cutoff, it's up to the teachers to say, well, they're going to get this much right, and this should be the cutoff grade. Sadly, though, this ideal is seldom realized. People make tests from administration, from states, from politicians, from who knows who makes it, but it's not the people that really know the content. Furthermore, the challenge or difficulty of an assessment is also related to the quality of the teaching that students experience, right? Students who are taught well and provided ample opportunities to practice, demonstrate what they've learned, typically find well-aligned performance tasks or assessment questions to be much easier than do students who are taught poorly or given few practice opportunities, right? We know that as teachers. So therefore, a percentage score of 90 might be easy for well-taught students to attain, whereas attaining a score of, say, 70 could prove exceptionally difficult for students that were poorly taught, right? For multiple factors influence students' performance. Many of them lie outside the student's control. You know, they're getting a grade, but they had a bad teacher, right? They didn't learn the material. The material wasn't presented. It wasn't available for them. They didn't have the opportunities to practice. There's lots that goes into it. So let's take a quick pause here to recognize our sponsors. But when we come back, I want to talk about the use of zeros and how they distort grades in a bad way. Well, a big thank you goes out to our sponsor, the Colony Hotel, with locations in Kennebunkport, Maine and Delray Beach, Florida. With their generous support, this podcast is able to be produced and shared with all of you. So please consider their gorgeous resort properties for your next vacation. To find out more information, check out their website at www.thecolonyhotel.com. That's www.thecolonyhotel.com. And you too can help to support this podcast as well. Individuals can donate through Patreon. And we will have a link on the website, www.chefeducator.com, for you to do just that. And businesses and companies, you too, can support us by reaching out to drprofessorchef at gmail.com. We will give you a media kit, which includes sponsorship levels and rates. So send us an email, drprofessorchef at gmail.com for your media kit to see how you, as a business or company, can support or sponsor this podcast. Okay, we're back. So let's talk about the use of zeros, something I see all the time. Now, when combined with the common practice of grade averaging, a single zero can have a devastating effect on a student's percentage grade. The student's overall course grade then becomes unfairly skewed by that one atypical low score. 
And to recover from a single zero in a percentage grade system, a student must achieve a perfect score on a minimum of nine other assignments. One zero, say it again, a student then must achieve a perfect score on a minimum of nine other assignments to bring that back up. They just kill a student's grade. Attaining that level of performance would challenge the most talented students and may be impossible for struggling learners. Gusky states in his book that a single zero can doom a student to failure, regardless of what dedicated effort or level of performance might follow. Zeros in this type of system are bad. And I see this all the time. I see it in my own children's schools from their teachers, and it drives me bonkers. I have to have a lot of parent-teacher meetings. So grades are broken when zeros are entered into a student's academic record for missing evidence or as a punishment for transgressions. When combined with other evidence, the resulting grade does not, does not accurately reflect student achievement. And zeros are most commonly found in teachers' grade books when students fail to submit required assessment evidence, such as turning in assignments. They are also sometimes used for serious behavioral infractions, such as cheating. Oh, you cheated? I'm giving you a zero. There are three fundamental problems with zeros. Zeros, number one, give a numeric value to something that has never been assessed and therefore has no basis in reality. Number two, they can have counterproductive effects on student motivation. They just get bummed out. And number three, they involve inappropriate mathematics. And I'll go over these. So zeros, not good. And I know there's some schools out there, districts, principals, deans that say, oh, they don't turn it in, put a zero in the grade book. And that is wrong when it's a percentage grading. There's times when you can use it, and I'll show you how I do in just a moment. But the most important issue is that zeros in the record render grades ineffective as communication because the resulting grade is an inaccurate representation of the student's achievement because it skews the numbers. Assigning a zero to something that has not been seen compromises the accuracy of the grade. It does so to an unknown extent. Such information can only lead to poor quality decisions about students and their learning. So regarding motivation, as soon as the students have more than one zero, they have little chance of recovery. And many of them know this, which increases the likelihood that they're just going to give up. You know, in high school, for some students, this can happen as early as the end of the first month of the school year. You know, September, they get their first zeros. Well, that effectively renders the remaining remainder of the school year a waste of time, at least from a learning perspective, right? Because their grades are tanked. So one potential side effect is that students who have given up often then have disciplinary problems, right? The other motivational problem is that students who are not concerned about grades are willing to take a zero. I've seen students before, I'll take the zero. D's fine with me, take the F. And are thus not held accountable for their learning when they take that zero. They're not doing the work. We are faced with the irony that a policy that may be grounded in the belief of holding students accountable giving zeros, actually allows some students to escape accountability for their learning. And the mathematical problem with zeros is that they represent a very extreme score and their effect on the grade is always exaggerated, which is totally unacceptable. Now, certainly, students need to know that there are consequences for what they do and do not do in school. Um, 
irresponsible actions, dilly-dallying, just being lazy, they, they should be penalized. But should the penalty be so severe that students have virtually no chance of recovery? I don't think so. And the true culprit in this matter is not minimum grades or the zero. It's the percentage grading system I just talked about. Because in a percentage grading system, a zero is the most extreme score a teacher can assign. To move from a B to an A in most schools that use percentage grades, right, requires improving only 10 percentage points, right, at most, say from uh, 84 to a 94 at our school. 84 is a B plus, 85 is a B plus, 95 is an A plus. 10 points, B to an A. But to move from a zero to a minimum passing grade requires six or seven times that improvement, usually from a zero to 60 or zero to 65. That's a huge mountain to climb. And if the purpose of grading is to communicate information about how well students have learned and what they have accomplished in school, well, the grading system should not punish students in ways that make recovery from failure impossible. In a percentage grading system, assigning a grade of zero does exactly that. And that's why I'm totally against them. Zeros are generally used in grading scales that have unequal differences in the points on the scale. So that an included zero has a disproportionate effect. Because let's go over this. The most commonly used grading scale, most schools, is an A, 90 to 100%, a B, 80 to 89, C, 70 to 79, D, 60 to 69, right? Most schools use that. And then the F would be below 60%. Well, in this scale, just look at it. There are 11 points for an A, 10 points for a B, 10 points for a C, 10 points for a D, and 60 points for an F. That's crazy. And I'll illustrate the problem using this scale. Let's say we have a student who was supposed to do five assignments in our class, but does only four. His scores are A, B, C, and D on the four assessments. So we give him a zero for the fifth one because he didn't do it. Well, the mean for the four assignments he did would be 80 or a B, right? 95 plus 85 plus 75 plus 65, that equals 320. Divide by four, that's an 80. However, with the zero in there, the mean is lowered to a 64% or a D, that's 320 that we had from before, adding those four numbers up, divided by five now because of that zero. So that gives them a 64. That's a drastic reduction that is caused by the range for an F, which is six times greater than the range for the other four grades. That's why it's just punitive when we give zeros. In my opinion, if you're using a 100-point scale, then zeros are unfair. Let me give you another example. Which student has demonstrated greater mastery on five chapter tests? Student one, who gets 100, 100, 100, 100, and a zero because they missed the test. Or student two, who takes all the tests and gets a 75, an 80, a 90, an 80, and a 90. Which one? Well, mathematically using averages, it is student two because they would get an 83 average whereas student one would only get an 80%. Now, obviously, just by looking at those scores, we can see that student one demonstrated greater mastery. They had 100 
on four of their tests. However, even demonstrating consistent mastery on every test can be undone by a single zero. An F means a student has failed to demonstrate acceptable evidence of mastery. That's all. Do we really need to have multiple gradations of failure then? Is it helpful to discern between failure and absolute failure and super loser and no chance of passing ever unless you get a ton of A's level of failure? I mean, this is crazy. What, who does it care? What does it matter? If you fail, you fail. You don't have to go all the scale. I mean, are we trying to be punitive or instructive? The humane definition of accountability is the one that reminds us that our role as teachers is to help, not hinder the student. We want our students to perceive that there is a ladder extended to help them crawl out from the hole. It doesn't matter why the student failed. Effectively, we as teachers should provide the ladder. Getting a 50 or a 59 is still failing. But in terms of recovery, it's not the same as getting a zero. And we ought to all be in the help our students recover business. Zeros are a fundamental shortcoming of the traditional grading system and makes the communication process of telling us what each student really knows is flawed and it's no longer valid. This shortcoming is clearly evident when we examine, for example, 10 consecutive assignments of 2D students. Though each student completed the course with an average grade of 64, let's look at how each did on the 10 assignments. Let's look at student A scored a 64 on each of the 10 assignments, which is clearly a final grade of 64, right? 640 divided by 10, 64, right? 10 assignments, 64. Now, student B, however, missed the first two assignments for whatever reason and was given zeros. On the next eight assignments in a row, they scored an 80 on each. Okay, so we have student A, 10 scores, all 64s. Student B, eight scores of 80, all eight of them. And then he had two zeros, or she. You will reason that since they are pretty consistent, they would have a final grade of around 80, right? For that B student, you know, they're all 80, they just missed two. But with those two zeros factored in, their average is a 64 as well, because their grade is 640, but it's now divided by 10. See how those zeros kill? This is why I believe that the averaging of all or most assignments on a 100-point scale insufficiently communicates what a student knows and is able to do. In the example I just gave you, both of those students would have received the same final grade, but it's difficult to make the case that the data represents students with identical levels of understanding of course content. I mean, student A, a student who never scored higher than a 65 or 64 on any assessment, has the same final grade as student B, a student who scored 80 on the final eight assessments. And there are really two flaws at play here. First, as I've already pointed out, when averaging on a 100-point scale, the use of zeros is particularly damaging to a student's grade. It is impossible to determine the reason for the zeros received in the examples I just gave you. But typically, zero scores are reserved for students who have not turned in an assignment. And as I just illustrated, the mathematical problem with zeros is that they represent a very extreme score and their effect on the grade is always exaggerated. And that's because zeros are typically used on the typical grading that is similar, as I mentioned. A's 90 to 100, B's 80 to 89, C's 70 to 79, D's 60 to 69, F's below 60. 
That means there are 10 points for, for an A, B, C, or D, and 60 points for an F. That's a huge jump. And consider the implication for student B in the example I just used. If, for example, they receive zeros because they did not complete assessments one and two, then those zeros communicate nothing more than a lack of completion and do nothing to communicate proficiency on standards, proficiency of objectives, or learning targets. In that case, it is difficult to justify the use of zeros if the goal of grading is to communicate students' proficiency in those areas. If, on the other hand, the zeros represent the quality of their work on assessment one and two, then there are still mathematical concerns with the use of zeros relative to the established grading scale. I mean, they should have gotten some points. And this is where I hate this when teachers do that. They say, oh, well, you can turn it in, but you're only going to get half credit. You're only going to get a quarter credit or we're taking away points. Because again, it's not fair. It doesn't work with the calculations. It's not really telling us what students know or don't know. Now, the second flaw at play here is that the grading practice of averaging each student's scores does not allow the grade to communicate a student's present level of performance because it does not reflect learning at the current time. In other words, grades should be based on the most current evidence of the student's level of achievement on intended learning outcomes. The practice of averaging over an entire grading period does not yield a summary of current level of achievement for, you know, learning targets that reflect continuous growth. Because people are learning. They're going to, obviously, they're going to be probably not as good at the beginning. They'll be better at the end, unless each one of those grades uh, reflects a unit that stands by itself. So let's just think about that for a minute. There is no assessment in the world, at least any assessment that matters, that relies on an average of performance. Not professional exams for, say, becoming an engineer, a pilot, a hairstylist, or even a nuclear reactor safety official. And that goes for licensing tests as well, such as medical license, or even when you get your driver's license. Can you imagine if the driver's license examiner said to you after your road test, Hey, you did a great today, 100%. However, I can't give you your license because when I factor in your earlier practice test when you were just beginning, as well as that one day when you missed driving practice and I had to give you a zero, well, your average just doesn't cut it. Sorry, no license. It doesn't make sense. To calculate a grading average across time is to engage in the fantasy that proficient individuals never make mistakes, or more likely that their mistakes are counterproductive. Come on, mistakes are how we learn as humans. I mean, watch any toddler learning to walk, and it's clear that mistakes are the engine of success. To say the toddler should get a poor grade in walking because of the many failures along the way is just ridiculous. The toddler eventually got there. They mastered the skill. And here's a news flash: When the curriculum is rigorous, all students make mistakes. But the most successful students always learn from those mistakes. My courses, for example, are hard. They push the students. But they persevere and they learn. And I provide them with every opportunity to be successful, including retakes and resubmittals. However, to average the indicators of the student's performance across time is to neglect the facet of the learning process. That is like saying, we don't care whether our teaching had any impact on learning. We're going to grade all, everything. 
or how students perform early on always matters. I mean, do any of us really believe that? We want to see progression. A grading system that persistently punishes mistakes instead of rewarding eventual progress and mastery guarantees stagnation of learning. By contrast, a grading system that emphasizes a student's current performance or most recent evidence of achievement gives students a reason to keep trying, to keep striving to get better and improve, which is why we have final exams. Now, I'm going to talk about some alternatives to this, which makes it a little bit easier. I'm going to give you two, and I'll tell you the one I use. So recognizing the harm giving zeros does, you can do what many schools do, and that is to use the minimum 50 grading policy rather than a zero. The idea is that the interval between different grade levels should be equal, and therefore the interval between D and F, 60 and 50, should be the same as the other intervals between higher grades. So you remember, A to B is 10 points, B to C, 10 points. So now we've got failure at 60 to 50. So 50 is the bottom, the baseline, right? Instead of zero. So then if you put in the 50, you're not really unduly punishing the student. Now, this method can sometimes get complaints that, hey, students are getting 50 points for doing nothing. Well, not really. I mean, they're getting the points in there, but it's all going to be factored in. On a scale of 1 to 100, anything below 60 constitutes failure. Failing. So should we award a zero for unacceptable work, which puts the grade at the absolute bottom where the numerical distance to barely passing is so great? Or should we award, say, a 50, which can give the student hope? So when they do nothing, they don't pass in work, you could put 50 in there. Now, in recent years, much ado has been made about there's legislation passed in several states that bars school districts from stipulating that the lowest percentage grade that a teacher can assign to students is 50 rather than zero. And this has been done. And school districts that enact these minimum grade policies have no intention of giving students credit when no credit is due. It's just that a percentage grade of 50 is still a failing grade in nearly every school. It's just that it's not making them so they can never get out of it. In addition, though, some have suggested that minimum grade policies promote grade inflation and social promotion in school, and, you know, but really longitudinal studies show this is not the case. But you can see why it can be confusing because it looks like they didn't turn something in, they got a 50. So maybe without any explanation, someone might think, yeah, we have to turn stuff in, I got a 50. Now, rather than argue about minimum grades or zeros, here's another easy solution to this dilemma, and that is to do away with percentage grades and instead use an integer grading system of zero through four. In such systems, improving from a failing grade to a passing grade means moving from zero to one, not from zero to 60 or zero to 65. So it's easier in order to calculate. Using the four-point scale is more appropriate and a more direct way to solve the problem. And this is what I use. I use this four-point scale. In this method, an A is worth four points, a B is three points, a C is two points, a D is one point, and an F is a zero. So in this case, a zero is okay and appropriate to use because it's all equal in the scales. I like the integer system because it makes recovery possible for students. It also helps make grades more an accurate reflection of what the students have learned and accomplished in school. And as educators, we are all familiar with integer grades because it is what the majority of colleges and universities in the United States, as well as most high schools, use when they compute students' grade point average. That's how we get GPAs. In fact, using zero to four integer grades would eliminate the problems that some schools experience in trying to convert 
percentage grades to four-point or five-point GPAs. And integer grading scales align with the levels used to classify student achievement in most state assessment programs. For example, they have below basic, basic, proficient, and advanced. So the four integer grades fall right in line with that. And with the four-point rubric that many teachers use in judging students' performance on classroom assessments, it's easy. That's what I do. It falls right in line with it. And I have found that the use of integer grading systems results in grades that are more meaningful and reliable. And different teachers, when reviewing and considering a specific collection of evidence of student learning, can generally reach consensus about the zero to four integer grade that the evidence represents. So if I'm teaching with the same class as another colleague of mine, it's easy for us to say, nah, it's a three, it's a three and a half, rather than trying to say it's a zero to a hundred. And don't get me wrong, integer grades do not necessarily make grading easier. They simply make the process more accurate and honest. But even with the integer grading system, I still try to reserve giving zeros uh, and their use only as a last resort. I'd much rather use an I, especially as a final grade, which indicates obviously incomplete or insufficient evidence. This is both educationally sound and potentially quite effective. One reason is that it clearly places the responsibility where it should be with the student. It's a student's responsibility to produce sufficient uh, evidence that we as teachers can use to make a valid summary judgment. So we need to have that. And if they just say, oh, I'll just take the zero, no, put in the I, especially if it's that last grade. And it's like, no, it's, you have to do the work because that's what you're really there for. So therefore, it's extremely important that schools and districts have the option of the I available to teachers so that they can use that on their final report cards. You know, I know a lot of schools don't like that. Don't put in an I in. You know, they want you to put in the final grade, but an I just gives some time. And when it comes to motivation, the I usually has the same impact as an F, meaning no credit. And it accurately communicates what the problem is, which is that the student didn't do the work. They didn't do the assignment. They didn't take the assessment. So a zero doesn't say that. It could be like, well, did they really get zero points on it? But an I shows you they didn't do it. They didn't do the work. Another benefit is that while zeros can doom students to failure very early in the school year, with support and time, an incomplete grade can most often be made complete or sufficient so that I buys them some time. Now, of course, for this to happen, schools and districts need to have clear policies and timelines for students to move from an I to a grade that accurately represents their achievement. This is the positive, supportive approach that is likely to be much more effective in promoting further learning than is the negative and punitive impact of zeros. And if a student the first month of school sees two zeros, they're going to be like, well, I can't get out of this. But they see eyes, and they can come approach you. You can sit down with them. You can make a plan. You can have them put in the work, which is the, really the key, right? They're doing the work. They're doing the learning. And in chapter nine of my book, Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, I address grades and, and morale, as well as various grading challenges. I talk about grade inflation, grade disparity, missing grades, and even grade insurance. And I'll leave a link to the book in the show notes in case anyone is interested in getting a copy of that book so you can read much more about it. In the book, I also talk about late work. Now, when students turn in their work late, how we respond can mean the difference between learning and non-learning. Now, the textbooks I have read are much less prescriptive about how to deal with late or missing assignments or tests. 
At a minimum, instructors should specify how these matters will be dealt with in your course syllabi. It's up to us. It's not Research doesn't have a clear black and white on this, but there is some good and bad, and I'll explain that. So as I've already explained, my recommendations regarding assessments is that zeros not be averaged in for missing test scores because it's overly punitive and will misrepresent the level of achievement conveyed by the grade. However, when it comes to late work, we as teachers must decide if the late work is incidental or habitual. If, for whatever reason, the student was unable to meet a particular deadline, but usually does meet the deadlines, then the late work is incidental, and extending the deadline not only enacts accountability, but it also teaches compassion. On the other hand, if late work is chronic, we might inquire why before we blindly punish. Oh, they didn't put the work in. Give them zeros. They're always late. Personally, I would rather investigate and take some action. I would talk to the student about their time management, their personal responsibilities, and even what is going on in their life. It could be something I don't know about. Yes, we might hear our excuses like, oh, I'm working all the time. I don't know how they work all the time. Or that their grandmother has just died for the third time. You know, we've heard all of those before. Yes, we may get them. However, my main goal is to communicate to them that I am aware and that I am concerned. And that they need to be both aware and concerned as well. I also need to find out if the level of instruction or the assignments are appropriate for that student. And maybe that student needs to seek out some extra help or they need to go to tutoring or they need to come to my office hours. The only way I'm going to find that out is to have a conversation with them. My objective is to basically resolve the issue however possible. Get the student back on track and move forward with the student's learning. As the teacher, our ultimate goal is that the student learns the material. So the appropriate response to late work is to provide places and times where the students are required to complete the work. I'm not going to let them have the zero. Now, some students may want to be punctual, but have difficulty with you know executive functioning. Others may have lost interest in the content or with the teacher or in school in general. So before we can address the behavior of turning work in late, we must understand why a student is experiencing this challenge. Time management, project management, they're skills that need to be learned. They're not inherent character traits. Our job as teachers, I believe, is to use research-based practices to support these students, both academically and behaviorally. Now, out of fairness to the other students who turned their work in on time and met the deadline, some teachers often resort to a, a variety of punishments. Some, I know some of my colleagues, take a whole letter grade off the assignment for each day that it's late. Well, to me, that's not a good option because I think it not only does it send a punitive message, but also that if too many days go by, it often makes the students say, why bother? I mean, after three days, it's a D, and that's if it started as an A. So at some point, they're like, I just can't do it. Forget it. It's too low. I'm not going to do that. So that's not a good motivation. And as I just mentioned, my goal was for them to do the work and thus do the learning. I find that it's usually better to maybe take a few points off each day it is late so that at least it sends the message, hey, you know, you're late, and it gives them, you know, a prodding to do it. But it's not enough to make the student want to give up on the assignment or learning the material. And one of the books I research, which is titled Fair Isn't Always Equal, Assessing and Grading in the Differentiated Classroom, the author Rick Wormelli, or Wormelli, Wormelli, I believe it must be, Wormelli, talks a lot about accountability. He states that accountability implies a concern for the welfare of those with whom one works. 
And this definition carries the message that I am here to help you along, to help you grow. It also implies that teachers are learner advocates and have a responsibility to help students grow as learners, just as students have a responsibility to demonstrate their growth as learners. In other words, there is mutual accountability, a mutual accountability that focuses on achievement. In other words, we as teachers practice accountability when we focus on actual achievement and not on non-academic factors. And we teach accountability when we demand that students show their real learning and growth. This is another reason why we should not include such things as attendance and classroom behavior in a student's final grade, because then it would not solely reflect a student's academic achievement. The author uh, Romelli clearly states in his book that in many classrooms today, there is way too much that goes under the banner of a grade that has little or nothing to do with the achievement that a grade is supposed to represent. He states, a grade is supposed to provide an accurate, undiluted indicator of a student's mastery of learning standards. That's it. It is not meant to be part of a reward, motivation, or behavioral contract system. If the grade is distorted by weaving in a student's personal behavior, character, and work habits, it cannot be used to successfully provide feedback, document progress, or inform our instructional decisions regarding that student. The three primary reasons we grade. He goes on to say, a student who is truly performing at the highest instructional levels with the highest marks, even though it took him longer to achieve those levels for whatever reason, is not, serve it, not served by labeling him with false lower marks and treating him as if he operates at the lower instructional levels just because it took him a little longer to get the same standard of excellence. His achie he achieved excellence and his digression should not be held against him. Pretty good. And it's for this exact reason that in my classes, I not only allow resubmissions and retakes, but I encourage it. Now, of course, many teachers allow students to redo work or retake tests, but they don't usually award full credit the second time around, or they may average the revision with the original grade or something else like that. But if they're not giving them the full credit, it basically says to the student, you know, no way you're getting off easy. No way you're getting the full grade. No way. This is exactly what my son's high school world geography teacher told me at his parent-teacher conference. Oh, he can't get full credit. Their argument is something along the lines of, well, if Johnny gets an A on the paper when it is due, should Jane also get an A, even though she had to revise it three more times after the due date? Well, that wouldn't be fair. Well, my question back to her is, if Jane needs extra time for revision, as well as extra coaching to demonstrate the same level of achievement as Johnny, then shouldn't her grade reflect that achievement regardless? In reality, didn't she just need something different, differentiated learning, to show that she can achieve at high levels, different from what others in the class needed? Furthermore, if we settle for what Jane has pr produced the first time around, then what are we teaching students about accountability? that they're not accountable for showing what they can do, that we are willing as educators to settle for less than they are capable of producing. Now, of course, the problem goes much deeper than just my son's teacher because it's ingrained in the culture, the administration, and, it's, and they often hear, well, that's the way we've always done it, but it's not right. They did the work. They produced it. It might have taken them a little bit longer. Given half credit when they did the work and they proved, their score should reflect that. 
by penalizing them for late, it just skews the number. It doesn't accurately show that they learned or mastered the material. And that's why it's wrong. Maybe I need to send my son's teacher a link to this podcast. Yeah, but the question is, would it help? She'd probably still stick to her guns. Anyway, we can even think about test retakes in the same way. That is, if a student students fail a test or even do poorly on it, are we willing to let them off the hook? It's hard, especially with those students who don't care about learning or their grades. But we as teachers have to be unwilling to let them get away with not learning. When we mandate retakes, we are basically you know, in the students' faces demanding excellence. We are holding them accountable by asking them to go back and redo tasks until they get them right. And what about the student who turns in no homework but earned straight A's on all the tests? Should that student get an A in the class? I had a student just like that last term who not only didn't turn in the homework, He never came to class unless there was a quiz or a test scheduled. Should he get an A? Well, to me, sure. And he did. I mean, think about it. He proved that he could reach the highest standards of excellence. He also proved that he didn't need to do the homework or listen to my lectures or do the in-class activities to ace the test. Now, he, he didn't get a perfect grade in the class because of the way the assessments are weighted, but he did get an A. He proved that he fulfilled the objectives of the course, which are measured through the various course assessments. That's how I build the classes. Now, the author Romelli talks about this as well in his book, and he says that homework should be practice. And if someone can demonstrate excellence without practicing, what's wrong with that? And unless the homework is used to demonstrate incremental mastery all along the way, with each formative piece adding up to a whole that equates with summative mastery, homework falls into the category of other when it comes to grades and shouldn't be included. Now, some of the other things that shouldn't be included in grades are such work habits as initiative, discussion skills, participation, and effort. Why? Well, let's start by asking ourselves, how do any of these things reflect academic achievement? Now, I'm not saying that these things don't contribute to academic excellence, nor am I saying that these personal qualities are not important or vital for academic success, just that they don't belong in a final grade that is supposed to represent mastery of a subject. I mean, look at your course objectives on your syllabi. Does it say anywhere that students will need to be on time to class? Or that they will they need to talk when they're in class? Or that they need to show up for every and each and every class? I doubt it. Now, regarding participation, we already know that grades are to indicate levels of achievement only. Therefore, it would be inappropriate to count class participation. And that is, unless, of course, it is an integral part of a course, such as a, like a foreign language course where a teacher needs to consider the quality of vocal responses and pronunciations as part of a student's grade. But even then, it shouldn't be the student's eagerness to volunteer in a class discussion that gets graded. Remember, willingness to express oneself in class is probably as much a function of personality as it is indicative of knowledge possessed. And to consider such behavior in determining grades would distort their meaning as measures of achievement. Therefore, it is ill-advised to consider student responses to oral questions as a basis for grades. Now, attendance per se can also rarely be justified as a factor in evaluating achievement. An easy way to think about this is if if you went back to, say, first grade, would you need to be there every day and participating to prove that you knew the material? Remember, this is first grade. 
Would you be required to do the homework every day as proof that you understood the material from first grade? Or could you just take the tests of the final exam, that is if they even have tests and final exams in first grade, to prove your achievement? It's my belief that attendance should not be factored into a student's overall grade. Now, is attendance important for learning? Of course, which is why I view, to view a student's lack of attendance as a genuine concern and something that needs to be reported to uh, administration, the dean of students, the truant officer, or whatever department oversees that area. It's important. I just don't think it should be built into their grade. And many teachers continue to have policies that wield grades as punishment for behavioral issues, such as absences, tardiness, inappropriate conduct. Most often, as already mentioned, submitting late work. And as I already pointed out, the fundamental problem with this and any of these is that it ignores the primary purpose of academic grades, which is to communicate information about students' achievement with reference to learning goals. When grades are used to punish poor behavior, the true meaning of the grade becomes unclear because there's now uncertain mix of achievement and behavior. Not only does including indicators of behavior in an achievement grade cause difficulties when we interpret the grade, but it's also harmful to students' motivation and engagement. When grades are lowered because of late work or missing homework, especially if the penalties are severe, students can lose hope that they can catch up, which is going to reduce their motivation to try. Of course, I believe positive behaviors and promptness are important to teach, but consequences for behavior should directly address the behavior and not involve penalties that affect students' academic grades. Students who submit work late don't need a markdown for their indiscretion. They need support. And if the work is important, it is better that it be done late than not at all. In conclusion, percentage grading systems that attempt to identify a hundred distinct levels of performance distort the precision, objectivity, and reliability of grades. They also create unsolvable methodological and logistical problems for teachers. Limiting the number of grade categories to four or five through integer grading systems allows educators to offer more honest, sensible, and reliable evaluations of students' performance. And combining each final grade with a supplemental narrative description or a standards checklist that describes the learning criteria used to determine the grade is a great way to enhance the letter grade's communicative value. And don't include zeros in grade determination when evidence is missing or as a punishment. Instead, use alternatives such as reassessing to determine real achievement or use the I for incomplete or insufficient evidence. Lastly, remember, grades are most meaningful and useful when they represent achievement only. Assigning fair and meaningful grades to students will continue to challenge educators at every level. The process requires thoughtful and informed professional judgment and abiding concern for what best serves the interest of students and careful examination of the tasks students are asked to complete and the questions they are asked to answer to demonstrate their learning. Only when such examinations and reasoned judgment become a regular part of the grading process can we, as the teacher, make accurate and valid decisions about the quality of students' performance. Okay, so as I mentioned, I have future episodes dedicated to this topic, so be sure to subscribe so that you are alerted when they drop. Another way to get more information is to check out the book I mentioned titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, which is published by Kendall Hunt. 
I wrote this comprehensive resource with my co-authors specifically for both new and seasoned culinary and hospitality educators. Written in an easy-to-understand format, the book has numerous charts, templates, and examples throughout and is available in both electronic and hard copies. Again, the book's title is Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, and it can be purchased on Amazon or through the publisher's website at www.kendallhunt.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes, which you can also find on the website, www.chefeducator.com. And if you enjoyed this episode or the podcast itself, be sure to let us know. You can send comments, questions, and or suggestions to our email at drprofessorchef at gmail.com or even leave us a voicemail at area code 207-835-1275. It's area code 207-835-1275. Who knows? Maybe we'll even play your message in a future episode. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of The Chef Educator. Until we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Proud member of the Food Media Network.